Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Jessica Levinson, a professor at Loyola Law School, and I'm joined today by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong. Hello, Jessica. It's an almost all-Texas episode today on Passing Judgment, and we're going to talk about challenges to SB8, the extremely restrictive abortion bill signed into Texas law last week, a brand-new Texas law that restricts voting access, a challenge to a Texas death penalty case that is related to religious rights. And at the end of today's episode, we'll take our leave of Texas and discuss a back and forth case about Ohio and whether or not courts there can force a hospital to administer ivermectin. That's a drug typically used to deworm livestock. Now that drug is unapproved for use in treating COVID-19. So we'll get the lowdown on that. As I said before, it is an almost all Texas episode. So let's get to it. We're going to talk about abortion first. It has now been a week since Texas's new abortion heartbeat bill went into effect. That bill bans abortion in Texas after merely six weeks and imposes a system of essentially deputizing all Texans, allowing them to sue any individual helping a woman obtain an abortion after six weeks in the state of Texas, which is before most women even know that they happen to be pregnant. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed it into law on May the 19th of this year, and the Supreme Court refused to take up a challenge by the Center for Reproductive Rights filed on August 30th, just before it went into effect, and voted 5-4 to four to deny the motion on September 1st. As with any controversial law, there will be challenges. So, Jessica, can you please fill us in briefly where we are in terms of legal challenges to SB8? And let's start with the federal level here. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is confusing because there's so much litigation surrounding this particular law. So the law, as you said, Joe, is in effect. We know that already women have been turned away from clinics where they are seeking abortions or counseling regarding abortions. And we know that what the Supreme Court said last week is, we're just allowing this law to go forward. We're not ruling on the constitutionality of it. This is just a procedural decision. Now, for reasons that we talked about last week, Joe, and I'll refer people to that episode, I think that's just utter hogwash. The law clearly goes against Roe v. Wade and a more recent case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And there's no way those two things can live together. But what we're going to see now is that in fact, we will litigate the constitutionality of this law in federal court. So it will probably go up the federal system one more time at least. There will potentially be a trial. It'll go back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals that hears appeals from Texas. And then depending on what happens in the big case out of Mississippi next term where the court's going to rule on a 15-week abortion ban, this case could go back up to the Supreme Court. So certainly not the end of the road, but the thing that we've tried to emphasize for the listeners, I think, is that the Supreme Court, by allowing the law to go into effect, I think has absolutely signaled what its views are with respect to restrictive abortion laws and that Roe is unlikely to survive long term. All right, Jessica. So what about at the state level? Is there any legal activity in the Texas state courts going on right now? 
Yeah, there is activity in the state level. And in fact, Planned Parenthood has sued an anti-abortion group and won a temporary restraining order. And I'm going to shamelessly plug a piece that I just wrote, a column I just wrote for MSNBC that will be up and maybe we'll link to it in the show notes. And what's happening in the state court is that people, pro-choice advocates, groups, again, that have enough resources to bring these cases, that's so important to emphasize, that you need an individual or group that has enough resources to bring these cases, that they're bringing these and saying there's a problem under Texas law. So these are not federal challenges. And the kind of end goal for Planned Parenthood is frankly to be able to go up to the Texas Supreme Court and get a favorable ruling that this Texas law in fact violates the Texas Constitution. So that's where we are, Joe. It's not a great solution. It's piecemeal. It depends on specific groups suing other groups. It's just really a game of whack-a-mole. And it also depends on finding people with resources to do it. And I think it depends on this, frankly, pretty distant goal of the Texas Supreme Court finding this particular law unconstitutional. One thing, Joe, I should mention with respect to going back to what's happening in the federal system, there's obviously been an enormous amount of pressure on the Department of Justice to, you know, quote unquote, do something. And one of the things that Merrick Garland has done is he said, well, there's this 1994 law called the FACES law, and it basically allows women to go into and walk out of abortion clinics without being intimidated or obstructed or injured. Um, You know, Joe, I just think it's worth pointing out, one, this is a law that's already been in effect. It's on the books. It should have been enforced all along. And sure, let's enforce that law. But it doesn't change the fact that once a woman walks into that abortion clinic under Texas law, if she's been pregnant for more than six weeks, then the Texas law would still prevent her from having an abortion. And Joe, as long as I'm on the soapbox, do we have a moment to talk about what Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, said with respect to what it means to be pregnant for six weeks? We absolutely do, Jessica. Please take it away. So, Joe, you and I, as we do throughout the day, um, texted about this comment. I mentioned it in my MSNBC column. And Governor Abbott was asked some version of, are you really forcing a woman to carry a rapist child to term or, you know, to carry a fetus conceived as a result of a rape to term. And he said, no, 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 obviously. And I have a pet peeve when people use obviously. Obviously, that's not the case because this just bans abortions after six weeks. And the implication being that you have six weeks to ponder whether or not you want to try and obtain access to an abortion. That is just not the reality of how we count pregnancy, of how we measure a pregnancy. And that could only be true if you could obtain the abortion prior to conception. That's because we count how many weeks pregnant you are based on your last menstrual cycle. Now, you then typically wait about two weeks after conception to have your next menstrual cycle. Not everyone is perfectly regular, which is a long way of saying at the absolute best case scenario, you have 14 days 
of warning here that you might be pregnant to try and obtain an abortion in Texas. I assume it goes without saying that if you have been raped, if you are not somebody who has access to resources, if trying to, for instance, go across state lines is difficult for you, 14 days is really not a whole lot of time. So, Joe, I did just want to add that little bit of context to what's happening in Texas right now. It's a very, very important point, Jessica, and it doesn't even take into consideration the dwindling number of abortion clinics in states like Texas. So it imparts an undue burden that comes up in our show a lot on a woman having to travel a long distance and factor in that 14-day period, which is not much of a grace period. But let's move on. Jessica, there are a lot of big-name corporations based in Texas. Now, are any of those organizations in the private sector doing anything to put pressure on the state government about this new law? Yeah, I would say not necessarily putting pressure on the state government so much as saying, individuals, we will help you. And I think, look, this is what we increasingly will see is that members of the private sector might step up and say, for instance, what Uber and Lyft are saying, that we'll pay drivers legal fees if those drivers are sued under the Texas law. A reminder, how could the drivers be sued under the Texas law? Because the Texas law allows any private individual to sue another private individual for aiding, abetting, or a a woman in obtaining an abortion after about six weeks. Same thing with respect to some dating apps. Joe, I know you and I don't frequent those, but Tinder and Bumble, um, they've both created special funds to help people in Texas. Perhaps not a coincidence that I think both of those companies have CEOs that are women. And I think that we will see more of this, more private sector activity And frankly, more corporations with deeper pockets saying, we will help out because, again, a regular individual without access to this type of resource, very difficult to challenge these laws. Alrighty, thank you, Jessica, for that. Now, the dust hasn't remotely settled on SB8, and Texas was back in the news today. This time, Governor Abbott signed into law on Tuesday, earlier this week, a bill called SB1. In short, this bill bans 24-hour voting drive-through voting. It establishes new restrictions on mail-in voting. It grants new freedoms to partisan poll watchers at polling stations. It places restrictions on helping others vote. And it mandates that the Texas Secretary of State's office perform monthly checks of voter rolls to verify citizenship. Now, Jessica, we've seen these kinds of laws before in other states. So what is the ostensible purpose of this law in Texas? Yeah. And Joe, I just want to emphasize, you said in short it, and then you listed a whole bunch of things that I will just say in short that make it more difficult to vote without any good reason to do so. So I'm going to keep this short because listeners have heard me say a version of this before. The ostensible purpose here is to prevent fraud, to bolster the integrity of our elections. And that would be so very important if we had evidence of widespread fraud or if we had evidence of problems with the integrity of our elections. There are plenty of problems with the way we run elections, but widespread fraud is just not one of them. These laws make it more difficult for certain people to vote. And I don't like saying that. I don't like being here, but that's where we are. There is no widespread fraud to be found. This is a result of changes that particularly Harris County made in the 2020 election. You saw an uptick in voting in Harris County. This is a result of 
frankly, lawmakers in Texas knowing that the demographics indicate that Texas will turn purple and then blue and trying to hold that off as long as possible. But I can't at this point say I think there's a legitimate purpose here, and I wish that I could. And Jessica, like with the heartbeat bill, there are challenges here that have already been filed as well. Will you please walk us through those? Yeah, these are our familiar challenges to voting rights uh, laws, and I will say, or really I should say laws that restrict your voting rights. And really briefly, what we're looking at here are challenges under the federal constitution, specifically the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. I think there's also a suit under the 15th Amendment. And Joe, we're looking at challenges under what's left of the Federal Voting Rights Act. We've talked about this a lot on the show. The Supreme Court has really hobbled the Federal Voting Rights Act, but I think they're going to challenge this both based on the idea that this law has a discriminatory effect and a discriminatory purpose. We've talked about this a little bit. That's the same type of challenge that's being waged in Georgia with respect to that particular voting law. But that is really a difficult one to prove that there was, in fact, a discriminatory purpose. It shows you how difficult the Supreme Court has made it to succeed on a claim that a law has a discriminatory effect. So I feel not terrifically hopeful about these challenges, but we're going to see this play out over and over. And it is important that we continue to challenge these laws because, again, I think we know what they're about. Seems to me like Republicans in Texas wagging the dog. But let's move on to our third Texas topic of today's episode, which is as of our taping time, and this is crucial because we don't know what's happened just yet, a man named John Henry Ramirez is set to be executed at the Walls Unit in Huntsville, Texas, after being convicted in 2008 of murdering a man named Pablo Castro, a convenience store clerk back in 2004. Now, this was a brutal crime during which Ramirez stabbed Castro 29 times while while attempting to hold up Castro for money in order to buy drugs. Ramirez's execution was stayed by a federal judge in 2017 and then delayed again in 2020 due to the coronavirus pandemic. And the reason, Jessica, we are discussing this case today is that Ramirez has filed a lawsuit in district court that the conditions of his pending execution by lethal injection violate his First Amendment rights. Ramirez wants to have his spiritual advisor lay his hands on him during the execution process. And at this point, the Supreme Court is now involved. And why is that, Jessica? What are the legal arguments here? Well, I think you actually previewed the legal arguments really well. And this is, I believe, Mr. Ramirez's third challenge, third time that he's been set to be executed. And what he says essentially is that he needs to have his spiritual advisor, not just in the room, but actually, as you said, touching him. And Texas has said, look, due to security concerns, no. And it does bring up a question of what access to a spiritual advisor really means and what your First Amendment rights in this area really mean. But I will say thus far, the courts have turned down his arguments. And I don't expect that this particular Supreme Court will be more sympathetic to his views. All right, Jessica, I suppose we will keep an eye on that. It may yet be too late for him. So let's take our leave of Texas. As I said, this is an almost all-Texas episode. And Jessica, this particular case trips my radar. It pings my radar. And with a hat tip to Mark Marin and his WTF podcast, this particular story made me go, what 
ATF. On August 31st, a judge in Ohio ordered a hospital to administer ivermectin to a man named Jeffrey Smith after a doctor who was unaffiliated with that hospital prescribed it, and then the hospital refused to treat him with that drug. Now, ivermectin is typically used by veterinarians to deworm livestock like horses and sheep, but the use of the drug has grown very popular in a sect of Americans who are reluctant to take any of the three regularly available vaccines for COVID-19. That court order has been reversed by yet another Ohio judge who said that there is a lack of, quote, convincing evidence of the efficacy of ivermectin in treating COVID-19. So, Jessica, the first half of this is perplexing enough. I want to make that cartoon noise when the coyote is bonked in the head. So what is going on here? Can you please clear any of this up? I feel like if you were more dedicated, you would have learned to make that cartoon noise. But let's move past that for a minute. What's going on here? I mean, this was overturned. A judge said, look, there is no convincing evidence that this drug is effective. The judge sided with the hospital. The hospital, as you said, refused to administer this medication. This is just a weird lower court ruling. I don't have a lot more value to add to this one other than I think uh, the next judge really corrected this one. And it's just, I don't know, it feels like a story made for late summer 2021 in America, doesn't it, Joe? Yeah, it just fits right in there, Jessica. We are almost out of here. But before we go, can you please tell our listeners where to find your new piece? The aforementioned shameless plug? Yes, I will shamelessly plug it. That is somewhere on the MSNBC website, and I will link to it in the description of this episode. Thank you. All right, Jessica, thank you. You can find Jessica, as always, on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and elsewhere at InDepthDay, I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y, also InDepthDay.com. You can follow us here at Passing Judgment at the World Headquarters on Twitter at PassJudgmentPod and on Instagram at PassingJudgmentPod. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you.